Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beckesme. So Jenny, what do we have on tap for today? Well, this week, one of our PGY2 residents, Howard Choi, gave a great talk on acid reflux. And while this isn't the most exciting of topics, we do see a lot of it in the emergency department. And it it falls into that chest pain differential, which is filled with lots of badness. So it's really important for us to have a good handle on what GERD is and what it isn't. Absolutely true. I mean, some patients are going to go home with a diagnosis of Well, probably not GERD, but dyspepsia or something along those lines. Some of these patients are going to go home with that, and we need to know what it is and make sure that we're assigning it to the right group of patients. Now, every attending that I've ever met, including myself, has the story of the healthy guy with no risk factors who comes in with epigastric or chest pain, something that sounds rather benign, sounds like it has to do with acid, uh, but then they end up having a massive ST elevation MI or ACS or an aortic dissection. Now, Jenny, let me tell you briefly my story. I don't want to take up the whole podcast with it, but I had a guy who was 27, had been diagnosed with GERD in the past, had actually been scoped and came in because he was having burning epigastric pain radiating up to his throat. He said that he had been on a PPI, it didn't work, so he doubled the PPI. And I'm kind of thinking, you know, this guy looks great. He has no risk factors. His EKG looked fine. Why didn't he just go to his doctor? And so I asked him, why didn't you just go to your doctor? He goes, well, today I was walking to work and I started getting the same symptoms and that's never happened before. And so I sat there and thought to myself, huh, exertional dyspepsia. Is that really a thing? (laughs) And so I asked the other attending I was working with, who's a little bit more seasoned than I am. I said, have you ever heard of exertional dyspepsia? And she looked at me and said, of course, it's called an MI. And so I ran a trope on the guy. His trope was nine. He went to the cath lab and he had a 98% RCA occlusion with a really pristine looking EKG. It was amazing. So exertional symptoms should rule out the diagnosis of GERD. I think that's a good take home. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, chest pain, sometimes it's GERD, sometimes it's not. We have to make sure. Yeah, exactly. But unfortunately, sometimes it is just GERD. About 10 to 20 percent of the people in the Western world suffer from GERD. Yeah, it's really common. And up to 40 percent of non-ACS chest pain that we see in the emergency departments turns out to be GERD. So it's a really common thing. Yeah, I have a little bit of reflux myself, uh, especially after I eat spicy, fatty foods late at night, which I'm not supposed to do, obviously. And it can feel very much like what people describe as ACS. So kind of a squeezing mid-sternal pain. And if you don't know any better, you could think this was ACS and vice versa. So GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease occurs when there is movement of gastric juices up into the esophagus where they don't belong. A certain degree of this occurs in everyone without causing any problems. Sometimes though, there's just a little bit too much of those gastric juices that are getting into the esophagus. There are really three primary mechanisms where this occurs. So one is that there's just transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxation. Number two is that the lower esophageal sphincter just doesn't have good tone. It's it's hypotonic. And then the last is there's an anatomic disruption of the gastroesophageal junction, which is usually seen with things like a hiatal hernia. Then when the juices wash up into the esophagus, they cause symptoms that are associated with mucosal injury, and we call that GERD. There are certain risk factors that may predispose your patient to having GERD. So saliva actually is a protective secretion that can protect the esophageal mucosa from stomach acid. So any patient with decreased saliva, like a patient with Sjogren's or or even smokers, will have an increased risk of GERD. Additionally, the forward flow of stomach contents helps reduce what refluxes back up into the esophagus. So a patient with decreased gastric motility or impaired peristalsis will 
again, be at increased risk. And like you said, Swami, there are some anatomical risk factors such as a hiatal hernia or even obesity, which causes increased abdominal pressure, can increase the risk of developing GERD. And then, of course, there's the environmental factors, like you said, with spicy foods or NSAID use uh, or, or alcohol or caffeine, which can lead to some GERD. When the stomach acid washes up into the esophagus, they can cause damage to the esophageal mucosa and lead to inflammation. Now, this matters because the erosion can lead to erosive esophagitis and ultimately lead to Barrett's esophagus, which predisposes the patient to the development of esophageal adenocarcinoma. So while often we can brush aside the symptoms and say, oh, it's just GERD, no big deal, there are significant downstream consequences from untreated GERD, and so these patients are going to need close follow-up. Okay, so what is the classic presentation? Patients with GERD will endorse a burning or a squeezing retrosternal pain. Classically, it's an intermittent-type pain that can last from minutes to hours. Often it's worse after eating, like you said, or while lying down. It can lead to a sour taste in the mouth, and having had this before, I can vouch for just how bad this pain can be. It can awaken people from sleep, or it can be exacerbated by stress, like things like ACS. So it's pretty... It can be pretty bad. Absolutely. Now, the thing about GERD that's troubling in the emergency department is that we are supposed to think of it as a diagnosis of exclusion in spite of the fact that it is relatively common. You said 10 to 20%. We get really concerned about getting rid of those emergency life-threatening causes of chest pain. So the ACS, the dissection, the pneumothorax, PE, tamponade, or even Borhoff syndrome. What gets even trickier is that the patient can have more than one thing happening at the same time, as you mentioned. So they could have ACS, which leads to the stress, which causes the GERD. These things can coexist. We talked about this just a couple of weeks ago that Occam's razor does not apply to emergency patients. They can have as many damn pathologies as they want during that presentation. So having GERD doesn't negate the fact that they have ACS and vice versa. Yeah, so my patient comes in, they're describing a burning type chest pain. I think, well, this could be ACS or this could be GERD. How do I figure it out? Swami, can't I just give them either a GI cocktail or some nitroglycerin and know that if the appropriate treatment works, then that must be what they have. So the GI cocktail works, they're having GERD. The nitro works, they're having yeah, ACS. It would be right? nice if we had these treatments that could be diagnostic, but they're not. It's very similar to when a patient comes in with a severe headache and you give them something like metoclopramide or maybe even give them just some Tylenol and they get better. But you can't use that to diagnose and say, oh, they have a benign cause of headache because they got better with pain medicine. Same thing here. So we know that patients with ACS will respond to GI meds, specifically to antacids. So the fact that the antacid relieves the pain does not mean they don't have ACS and vice versa. Just because the pain resolves to nitroglycerin doesn't mean that they didn't have GERD. So we can't use these things diagnostically, but we should still be focused on getting rid of the patient's symptoms. So as we're getting rid of the symptoms, we're going to do the workup to make sure that they don't have some scary bad cause of chest pain. So Swami, what is the workup? In general, when patients present with chest pain, we're going to get an EKG and we're going to consider getting a chest x-ray. Now, the EKG may reveal clear signs of ACS, clear signs of ischemia or ST elevations. What we commonly see is an inferior STEMI that can present with dyspepsia. So something to really think about. Depending on their clinical history, so what risk factors they have, what their underlying medical issues are, you may or may not need to add on labs. Ultimately, you have to decide whether this sounds more like reflux or more like GERD based on the symptoms that the patient has versus ACS. Often, we don't need to do much of a workup, but I do think the EKG is almost mandatory in these patients. 
I agree. So while you're performing this chest pain workup, you do want to make the patient feel better. Treatments for GERD are often referred to as the GI cocktail. Now, this can vary from person to person or from attending to attending or shift to shift, but we generally include an antacid and an H2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine and maybe a PPI like omeprazole or esomeprazole. H2 blockers work fast, so I like to use them in the ED. They start working within an hour and last for up to 12 hours, ultimately suppressing 24-hour acid secretion by up to 70%. Now, while PPIs, or proton pump inhibitors, are the gold standard for management of GERD, they take some time to work. They irreversibly inactivate the proton potassium ATPase molecule, which you remember back from med school, that's in the stomach. And it takes up to 24 hours for the stomach to regenerate new pumps and insert them into the membrane. So PPIs provide a longer acid suppression. They provide 24 to 48 hours of acid suppression. But it takes them a while to work because they don't even get to work until they're activated by the acid of the stomach. So while they can be given in the ED if you're going to plan to discharge your patient on them, they don't really factor into the acute treatment of GERD pain. Swami, do you like to discharge your patients on a PPI? I think this is kind of tough. If I'm really convinced that that's what's going on, I will send them home on a PPI, but only for a short course. The problem with PPIs is they do work really well, but they do have some associated side effects. So they do increase the risk of C. diff infections. They increase the risk of fractures. They have drug-drug interactions. And they also can cause anemia when used long-term. So I'll usually give them maybe two weeks while they're waiting to get in to see their primary doctor. And then if their primary doctor wants to keep them on them a little longer, that's kind of up to them. But I'm okay with sending them home with it, but just a short course. The other thing to add to Jenny is when you're giving an antacid, make sure you give enough. This has to coat the stomach in order to really be effective. Now, both of us talked about this before we recorded, and we were using like 30 cc's of a Maalox or a Mylanta. I talked about this with our chairman when we um, listened to this lecture, and he said, why are you giving such a small dose? You had to give 60 cc's. 60 cc's of Maalox or Mylanta in the acute setting is going to fully coat the stomach and help to relieve the symptoms. Yeah, that's great. I've been underdosing that for years, so I'm really looking forward to my next GERD patient so I can do it. No right. one's ever said that before, by the <laughs> <So>. way. <laughs> I'm looking forward to my GERD patient. <laughs> so assuming that the patient's other chest pain workup is negative, and um, are there any situations where you're going to be concerned about the patient presenting with symptoms that you think are due to GERD? Yeah, I think like we said earlier, there are some significant downstream consequences of GERD, the Barrett's esophagus, the adenocarcinoma. And of course, you know, we have to think about the fact that these patients may also develop ulcers or be developing ulcers in the stomach or even in the duodenum. So I don't think we need to get them an endoscopy from the emergency department, but we do want them to follow up with a primary doctor so they get that evaluation to determine, hey, does this person need testing for H. pylori? Do they need an endoscopy performed to see if there's something more serious going on? If the patient complains of things like dysphagia or odynophagia or weight loss, these are not the typical symptoms that you see with GERD, obviously, then you have to be a little bit more concerned that there may already be some erosive esophagitis or there may already be a mass. And then, of course, if they come in with symptoms of a GI bleed, either dark stools or they've got anemia, this warrants a little bit more workup. 
So you've determined the patient has GERD and you're ready to send them out. You decide you're going to send them out on either an H2 blocker or a short course of a PPI. You've arranged for PMD follow-up. Ultimately, a lot of the treatment for GERD actually comes from lifestyle changes. This is not something that we do well in the ED, but we should be counseling patients that simple things that they change in their lifestyle may help to avoid the reflux without using medications long-term. So weight loss, less spicy foods, less alcohol, less caffeine, smoking, as you mentioned before, all of these things can help. Yes, we can put them on a PPI. Yes, we should follow them up with their PCP, but we should suggest these lifestyle changes as well. Yeah, I remember being diagnosed with GERD back in college and I cried and I cried because everything, literally everything <laughs> I like to eat was not on the list. I mean, you got to keep in mind, I was eating in a dining hall, so my options were limited. Uh, and so it was pretty, it was pretty traumatic for me. But Changing a few things like even just elevating the head of the bed and being careful not to eat within a few hours of going to sleep can make a really huge difference. I don't know why, but I got an image of you in college chain smoking with a hamburger in front of you and either a cup of coffee or a vodka. You know me. That was that. I was assume that that's sure. what you meant. So again, Jenny, you know, this is not the most exciting topic, but it's perfect for core content emergency medicine. And it's something that we're going to see very frequently. So why don't you hit us with the take home points? Absolutely. So first, GERD pain can mimic or even coexist with the more deadly causes of chest pain. Be sure to consider all the serious causes of chest pain, get an EKG, and maybe even get a chest x-ray while you go about your symptom management. Second, response to a treatment does not prove a diagnosis. This is important. So GERD pain may get better with nitro and ACS pain may get better with a GI cocktail. So make sure you're keeping an open mind while you're seeing these patients. Third, the standard treatment for GERD includes an antacid, make sure you're giving a proper dose, an H2 blocker, and maybe a PPI. Now, keep in mind that a PPI takes a while to work, so if you're going to give it in the ER, be sure you're giving something faster acting as well. And then last, for these patients, take those few extra minutes for some counseling on lifestyle modifications. Well, that's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up this Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google Plus, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week. <laughs>